Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's sutta is the Dhamma Vaharam Sutta, one who dwells in the Dhamma. And in this sutta, the Buddha is teaching the importance of establishing the proper method of meditation, jhana meditation, meditation, as the foundation for everything else that we do in Dhamma practice. And he's emphasizing here um, that importance because he's noticing like most of the suttas, it, it's contemporaneous to what's occurring within the original saga. And this one, he's noticing that uh, monks and nuns are taken more to the uh, study of his words and interaction within the original sangha um, and placing more importance on that than sitting twice a day. So, excuse me. <clears throat> Even during the Buddhist time, and even with the Buddha as their teacher, people still had a resistance to that simple basic practice. Um, and I've noticed that today. I just maybe a story illustrated. For uh, three or four years, I was going to a certain um, monastery that doesn't need to be named, um, sometimes for two or three day mini retreats. Uh, I took my vows in this place. But anyway, so I was going up there. Um, and they, they have a signs everywhere that we meditate in the great hall at 10, 10 a.m. every morning. And so from the time I started going there, I'd go into this magnificent place. It was one of the reasons why I took my vows is just the, 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 the colorful way. They had the best temples. They had the best hats. They had the big, those big long horns. And so I thought that was pretty cool. But anyway, so I go into, the, into this beautiful room to meditate. And day after day after day, I'd be the only one there. And finally, I got up the nerve to ask one of the novice monks what the problem was. And I said, I'm in there every day at 10 o'clock meditating. Where is everybody? And he said, oh, we're all there. They, and he believed it. They, they had it in their head that they meditate every day. But since they thought that they were, even though they weren't, this an, an entire monastery was living like that. <clears throat> and I noticed that throughout meditation, or there was the other extreme, an overemphasis on just meditation without studying the Buddha's words, without incorporating the Buddha's words, or fabricating the Buddha's words, changing them in some way to fit a narrative, which is mostly what's left of the Buddha's teaching in modern Buddhism, except here, as far as I know. But let me get to the sutra. On one occasion, a certain monk went to the Buddha, bowed, and sat to one side. He asked the teacher, what is the meaning of one who dwells in the Dhamma, who has thoroughly incorporated The Buddha replied, there is a case where a Dhamma practitioner may spend the day in Dhamma studies. They, they may investigate the dialogues and narratives of prose and verse, the spontaneous exclamations and quotations, stories of birth and amazing events, and the question and answer sessions like what we do here. If this one neglects, seclu neglects seclusion, 
meaning jhana meditation, and does not commit to developing the concentration that rests in refined mindfulness, this one does not dwell on the Dhamma. So without a meditation practice, a proper meditation practice, there is no Dhamma. That's one of the reasons why we emphasize the opportunity to sit twice a day. And I'd rather see, and it's more effective to have two shorter sits than one long sit. So in other words, if you're meditating for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but just once a day, break that up into two, two sessions of 10 or 15 minutes and your concentration will deepen and you'll have a much more effective Dhamma practice. The Buddha continues. There is a case where a Dhamma practitioner may have heard the Dhamma and have studied the Dhamma. They may spend their days describing the Dhamma. If this one neglects seclusion and does not commit to developing concentration that rests in refined mindfulness, this one does not dwell in the Dhamma. Then there is the case where a Dhamma practitioner has heard and studied the Dhamma. They spend their days reciting the Dhamma. Um, what the Buddha is referring to is chanting, which is um, arose out of the way that the Buddha taught, which was a verbal transmission of the Dhamma, there's no written words. That's one of the reasons why there's so many lists in the Dhamma, because that's easy to remember. So the monks would listen to these stories and they would create this a, a, a story to tell but in a repetitive way over and over and over again so that you can remember it. And this led to what I, I think, this is my speculation, um, the modern emphasis on chanting as a meditation practice. I used to go to another different monastery for many years and they, they had long, long meditations. I think we sat for an hour and a half, even on normal days. And then there'd be chanting and the chanting was always in, in Sanskrit, which I, don't, I know a few words. And I always felt foolish chanting this Sanskrit in a devotional way when I didn't even know what the words meant. But of course, I was told that the, the words themselves, because they, they come from Sanskrit, have a, their own vibration, which elevates your own vibrational levels up to. So again, none of it made sense, but I did it because I was part of this group. So here's, here's the, I mean, I felt silly chanting a language that I had no understanding. I didn't know what the words were. It was completely rote, but I went along with it because everybody else did it, but it, it didn't bear any fruit. I was always glad when that whole thing was over. Anyway, they spend their days reciting the Dhamma or chanting, and this one neglects seclusion and does not commit to developing the concentration that rests in refined mindfulness. This one does not dwell on the Dhamma. Then there is a the case where a Dhamma practitioner has heard and studied the Dhamma. They spend their days thinking about examining and evaluating the Dhamma with their intellect, with their intellect, picking, picking it apart. You're going to find some secret in there that maybe only you can discern. That's all just I making it I'm using my superior intellect to figure this out. If this one neglects seclusion and does not commit to developing the concentration that rests in refined mindfulness, this one does not dwell on the Dhamma. Another quick story. There's a, um, a relative of mine who's recognized as one of the foremost scholarly authority on, um, I can't think of what it's called now, uh, comparative Eastern religion. He, he had a seat in Oxford for a while. That's how brilliant this guy is. He's got a lot of books. And some of them have helped me figure out um, the setting in which the Buddha lived. But he, 
uh, his name is Carl Olson. Uh, it, he's, it, it's very, very thick and heavy reading, but it's also brilliant. Again, it's, he's recognized as authority on comparative Eastern religions. Um, and I had an occasion to see him. I don't normally talk to him or see him, uh, but at his father's funeral, and I walked up to cousin Carl and I said, you know, I read your books, you're really great. Thanks a lot, they helped me. How, how often, how much do you meditate a day? And he said, I don't have any time for that. So, so he, he understands intellectually much more than I ever will, but mm-hmm. the practice itself eludes him. And so he didn't, of course, you can't gain any benefit from something by just intellectual study. It doesn't get you there. Then there is a case where Dharma practitioners study the Dhamma. They have investigated the dialogues and narratives of frozen verse, thus the spontaneous explanations and quotations, the stories of birth and amazing events, and question and answer sessions. But they do not spend the day in Dhamma. They, they do not spend the day in Dhamma study, and they do not neglect seclusion. They commit themselves to develop the concentration that rests in defined mindfulness. This Dhamma practitioner dwells in the Dhamma. Let me just read that last again. They do not spend the day in Dhamma study. The Buddha is not saying don't study the Dhamma, but don't do that to an extreme. They do not spend the day in Dhamma study, and they do not neglect seclusion. They commit themselves to develop the concentration at rest and refined mindfulness. This Dhamma practitioner dwells in the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, I have taught you about the person who is keen on study, keen on description, keen on recitation, keen on thinking, and on those that dwell in the Dhamma. Whatever a teacher should do out of sympathy for you and seeking your welfare, I have done for you. What an amazing statement, isn't it? This man who was um, seen by many as uh, some kind of almost a prophet-like person is just saying, I'm just a human being who cares for you. There's nothing special about me except here I am to teach you. Then he says, over there are roots of trees and empty dwellings, meaning go find a secluded spot. And he concludes by saying, don't be mindless. Don't fall into regret. Practice right meditation and develop meditative absorption. So again, he's imploring all of us from 2,600 years ago, (coughs) and pointing us to the foundation of this thing that we're practicing. And of course, it's not just meditation, but it's the foundation of everything we do. Um, And then this last close with and develop the meditative absorption. And Zach asked me last week if I would talk a little bit about that. So I'm just going to go over the levels of jhana so that for all of our benefits and then right after retreat beginning on the 4th of July, Tuesday the 4th, we're going to begin a jhana review with a 32 class, 16 week um, review of of different suttas that relate to to jhana meditation. But the first jhana is quite secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities one enters and remains in the first jhana. So that's what we all do when we begin jhana meditation. We leave the world behind, we come into our secluded spot. And it's a good idea that your meditative 
meditation spot or area be the same, be consistent. If you have a, a, a room or a part of a room that you can dedicate to just your meditation practice, that's that's the most skillful way to do it. That room or that area will, will remind you that now it's time to sit. And when you go into that area and you sit, your mind will begin to calm and you'll start doing these things. We'll take a, we'll take a breath and you'll start secluding yourself from the outside world by the use of being mindful of your breath. This first jhana is experienced as rapture or joyful engagement in what you're doing, born of that very seclusion. And so most of us feel that. We feel maybe a relief when we just take a breath and for a few minutes, 5, 10, 15, 20, or 30 minutes, we leave the world behind. We've established seclusion and we're happy about it. We are enraptured. We're, we're joyful about what we're doing because we know what it brings us. And that's the first shot. Has anybody here in, online, please just um, don't raise your hand or call out. Has anybody here not experienced that first shot? Joyful engagement with just the seclusion of it. Then the Buddha says that first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. What does that mean? It means when I find that I'm caught up in a feeling or a thought, I direct my thought back to my breath. That's all it means. There's, there's, it's not taught, teaching us, the Buddha's not teaching us to direct our thought into intellectual investigation of what, what's occurring in my mind. Go back to your breath. And evaluation is just that. In the beginning of meditation, most of us are distracted by, am I doing this right? I don't think I'm doing it right. I should be doing it longer. That guy in meditation class think, looks like he's really got it. Or we meditate for 20 minutes in class and I only do five. All these things, evaluation. We're judging ourselves and our practice, usually in a harsh way. When we find that we're doing that in meditation during that first jhana, what do we do? We simply take a breath. And as we continue to do that and our concentration increases, we're able to recognize the other levels of jhana. And these other three levels of jhana are not, are not to be seen as accomplishments, something to grasp after. The Buddha simply teaches that. So we have a benchmark for our own developing concentration. So these are here to, be, to notice in our concentration that we're developing meditative absorption, but not so much to chase after them. The second jhana, the second jhana is the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. And again, the Buddha doesn't say stilling of directed thought and evaluation for three minutes or five minutes or 30 minutes. He doesn't put a time frame on any of this. So even if it's just momentarily, as our concentration increases, we'll have a couple of breaths maybe without having to direct our mind back to our breath. Has everybody here experienced that second jhana, even if it's just for a few moments? You're free of directed thought. You're just taking a couple of breaths without needing to direct your thought. Anybody? It still, it still means that thoughts and feelings arise. Yeah, everybody heard what David said? It still means that thoughts and thoughts and words arise, but we're not distracted <laughs> towards that. And so what we're thinking there, what so what we're training ourselves to do is to not be distracted by our own thoughts, which is where distraction arises always, isn't it? So jhana practice is a direct counter to being distracted, to being confused, to not understanding what's occurring. 
The second jhana is experienced as rapture, joyful engagement, and pleasure now born of concentration. So again, in this second jhana, we recognize, yeah, my, my concentration is increasing because I took three breaths without having to direct my thought back to my breath. That's the second jhana. It deepens that second jhana along with the first jhana as we increase concentration. But every one of us experiences this now. The point I'm making is it's not, it doesn't take any, any great initial powers of concentration. It doesn't take anything else but your own jhana practice, your own willingness to engage in it. And then these four levels of jhana develop as a natural consequence of that. They're not something that we grasp after. Quick, quick question, John. So yes, when you say that, or David, when you say that thoughts and feelings still arise, are you recognizing them and pushing them, or not pushing them away, but just coming back to your breath? Or yeah. you don't have to redirect. They, yeah. they appear, but you're still focused on the breath. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's so like you see them in your peripheral kind of. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. They're way in the background. And judgment. You're like, oh, shoot, I didn't get that. It's just, it passes away because all things are impermanent. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what Jen always teaches us when she's teaching about mindfulness. It's just, of course, it's, you're still a thinking person. Things arise and they pass away. And now we're saying, or the, the teachings on it, meditative absorption is just to <laughs> recognize it, mm -hmm. to make note of it. And again, the Buddha is saying that and teaching us so that we become self-encouraging about our Dhamma practice. You don't need, you don't need a, that crazy bold guy in Frenchtown in the back of your shoulder saying you better meditate. You do it because you recognize the benefits of it. And this is how you recognize the benefits of it. It's a simple, really a simple way to say, yeah, this is working for me. And it's, and it's okay. so important. And it's okay to recognize that you're in that first jhana, level jhana. There's no like, oh, I'm not getting it. I'm not in the second jhana. It's just, this is just where you're at. And it's always where we're at. So the, the Buddha, the Buddha never, I never came across anything where the Buddha taught, well, I don't even mess with the first two jhanas anymore, <laughs> and I go right to the third. <laughs> Because he didn't, he's a, he was a human being. And this is his meditation practice that he's describing to us. Thank Great you. question, thank you, Zach. Did I, did I answer it? We answered. Just to go back one sentence. The second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure born of, now born of concentration. Free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of, per, of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. So have you experienced that yet? The joy of concentration. Again, the Buddha doesn't say it permeates our entire body for 16 hours. It's just that we notice it, that we've had, we notice it, that concentration is increasing and it's joyful. And it should be because we're recognizing that we're finally gaining control of our own minds, which is what we humans should do. And imagine if everybody in the world had control of their own minds. <clears throat> You know, that we'd be living in that utopia that we all think we should be, but we're not. There is dukkha. That's why we need this practice. And there is always dukkha. Dukkha doesn't end just because we're good Dharma practitioners, does it? 
But as Jen says, we train only for calm. And that calm is rooted in understanding Dukkha, the first noble truth. And this is how we do it. This is the foundation for that. First, recognizing, you could say, in, in effect, the Dukkha that occurs in our mind by being distracted by feelings or thoughts and learning to not be. Now we're learning to understand Dukkha. It occurs out there and it occurs in here. But I don't have to be distracted by it. I can understand it. And I can even understand, as great as I am, that I'm subject to Dukkha too, just like the Buddha was. The third jhana, the third jhana is the fading of rapture. It doesn't mean that we're not joyfully engaged, but we simply don't notice it. And maybe we could say it's not really necessary as we continue to deepen our concentration. The third jhana is the fading of rapture. They remain equanimous, us. Equanimous, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure. Sensitive to pleasure. So that's also a key that a lot of people think that, oh, Dhamma practice is just dreary and unpleasant and there's no fun. With it, we, are, we develop the ability to be sensitive to pleasure, but we don't grasp after it. We notice it. Now we're noticing in our jhana meditation. This is pleasurable. And this is real pleasure, isn't it? And it's not, it's, a, it's an impermanent pleasure, but it's pervasive if we continue our Dhamma practice. We don't need anything else to distract us. We re, we're realizing and become familiar with it. Tibetan word for meditation is gong, G-O-F, which means to become familiar with our own mind. And as we become familiar with our own minds, we're no longer fighting our own thoughts. We're resting in jhana. It's first established in seclusion and now recognizing that our ability to live a meaningful human life is resting in concentration and we're doing it. We're developing concentration. Then the Buddha says, with the fading of rapture, with the fading of joyful and engagement, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. Has anybody here not experienced that third jhana yet? There's nothing special about this, is it? Except it's extraordinary where it takes us. But we're all experiencing this. It's not, this isn't for advanced meditators, it's for all of us. And it begins the minute we begin jhana practice. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the fourth jhana. The fourth jhana is the abandoning of evaluations. We're letting go of judgments. Most importantly, self-judgments. We're learning. This is what I mean when I say we should be gentle with ourselves. This is the most important application of gentleness. It should be applied in all of our all aspects of our lives, but right here. Because as we go from the, as our concentration deepens, we might start falling into this, ah, I don't have really time for this. It's not really bearing fruit. We abandon all that. There's no doubt in our mind that this is what we're doing that is so important to us. They enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Equanimity is simply a balanced quality of mind not going to extremes, the middle way. That's the direct example of the, of the middle way that the Buddha teaches. 
not thinking I need to be this or that, or my meditation needs to be this or that, or anything needs to be different than it is. We let go of the evaluation. First of our meditation practice itself, and that is the beginning of training to let go of evaluation of everything. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. It's the direct experience of that <clears throat> true selflessness in jhana meditation. So you've heard me say this a few times. Um, the jhana meditation is both metaphor and the direct experience of awakening. It's included in this process that we're recognizing now. It's so important. They enter remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain, is seen. We're not grasping after the, what normally distracts us throughout our entire human life. Neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Again, this is an example of selflessness. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. I'm not grasping after, and I'm not averse to anything. We have resolved the three defilements, the whole point of jhana practice, dhamma practice. And we experience it first on our cushion. And it's important to recognize it on our cushion so that we can recognize it off our cushion. And that's something we all talk about here. It's one of the things that's, be, that's really remarkable about this particular sangha and how similar we are to the original sangha. We recognize that the practice is bearing fruit. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They said permeated in, in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. And then the Buddha concludes this, I would say, rather magnificent explanation as saying the fourth jhana is a pleasant abiding, both metaphor and actual reference to an awakened mind, an awakened human being, a pleasant abiding it begins to permeate every moment of our life. It begins on our cushion and it's important to recognize it, even if it's just for a moment before we finish our jhana practice. This is a pleasant abiding. Has anybody here not experienced a pleasant abiding in their dhamma practice, in their, I'm sorry, in their jhana practice? You're all experiencing the four levels of meditative absorption. Now it's only a matter of continuing to deepen your concentration. You're engaged in, as in the Buddha's words and our words here, you're engaged in the right method and you're recognizing that it's bearing fruit. The teaching for today. I want to hear what you all have to say about this. Um, I'm going to go to Mary first because she's the birthday girl. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mary. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this, um, I, I read this and I read your book, John, I got copies of your books, wow. um, to share. So thank you for putting it all down because wow. it's all there. And, um, so I was reading it on the plane and the analogy that came to my mind, well, first of all, it came to me that whenever we're experiencing any resistance or hindrances or, we feel like, how come I've been doing this for this amount of time? You know, why am I stuck on this particular circumstance that I find myself in or whatever? We're making it very specific to something we're going through in our life. Not that I know anything about that, but just in case anyone is. Um, it's really good to come back to this because the instructions are all here. 
And the way to overcome that feeling of am I getting this or I'm stuck or resistance is really to come back to this. And I thought of it a lot like um, swimming and maybe, and I'm not a swimmer, but this is what came to me was, you know, maybe you've set a goal or, or you're, you know, part of a team or whatever, that it's really all about increasing your lung capacity, right? So you're going to push yourself a little further to do something a little different. Maybe you're thinking a little different, you're doing more strokes or whatever, but rather than thinking of these levels as achievements, that it's really thinking about um, like deepening concentration is in this analogy, like expanding your lung capacity that you are um, you're, you're focused on it to improve uh, concentration. It's not about the length of time. It's not about having um, aha experiences or things like that. It's really, in the beginning, the mechanics of it, right? So using your guided meditation, um, understanding that your thoughts will flow. They'll always flow. And that was I think only a couple of years ago that I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, your thoughts will continue to flow. They always will. And it's not, oh, my unique monkey mind. And it's really thinking through the mechanics of it, being gentle with yourself, bring yourself back to your breath, understanding that as your concentration deepens, you're like letting go of, of um uh, directed thought and evaluation that that comes in handy while you're going through and improving your concentration, but eventually even that you'll let go of. And as you let it go, it creates more space for the deepening of concentration. Anyway, I just thought that it would be like very useful because it, it was useful to me to really come back to the mechanics of this sutta um, anytime somebody <laughs> challenged because, um, you know, there are people that have come to this practice and they enjoy this part of it or they enjoy reading, but it, it can sometimes be a little evident that maybe they're not doing this part of the mechanical process of this practice. And it really is a requirement. And if you're going through the motion or, um, you know, maybe not being duly dedicated to this part, then you're missing out on a big piece of what opens up everything else. So um, I just enjoyed reading this on the plane, um, coming back. And uh, I think it's an outstanding uh, kickoff for, you know, all of those who are joining the retreat. Uh, but even if you're not joining the retreat, it's a wonderful thing to recommit to the mechanics and, you know, I always have to dissect things and put things into bullets. So I play around with this, just putting it into bullets so I can understand, you know, what it really is all about. And, and that was my takeaway, that this is the mechanics of meditation so that you can expand that lung capacity and do more laps or you know, experience that in the zone feeling that you might get from committing to uh, doing laps or something like that. And that correlates to, I think, what the Buddha is trying to say to um, all who would listen to him. So thank you, John. Thank you, Mira. It's a great analogy. And it's the, uh, you know, just like um, 
we begin life with one breath and we end our life with one breath. And the same thing is true of our thoughts. Our thoughts begin when the doctor slaps our behind and our thoughts end when we take that last breath. And along the way, we're supposed to have thoughts. Thoughts arise and pass away. They're always flowing. It's part of being a human being, but we don't need to be distracted by each and every thought. We can learn to meditate and develop concentration. Uh, let's go to Stephanie. How are you? Good to see you. Hey, John. I'm Stephanie, and I'm trying to be a Buddha practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are right I, now. Meditation's a, uh, a big part of my life, um, and uh, uh, twice a day or more of meditation, and. I've been doing it for a very long time um, and different styles of meditation. And this, this is a, a very good meditation because when I get very deep into the meditation, the little five minute wake up, I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm so surprised that it happens. Um, but one of the big things in the mechanics of it is that I just accept the fact that my mind is going to wander. It, it's, just a fact but if we close our eyes we have less chance of more wandering and then when I realize oh I'm wandering I say okay back in no problem and I give myself that break because that's who I am and that's how I'm built you're just built that way so if I don't meditate and do this practice in the way that it's written I actually feel like this disconnected strange the day doesn't go right. I, I'm all over. So when I start my meditation, I settle myself down. I'm here and I don't give it a big deal during the first five minutes because it's just, I'm all over still. But I always find that the last five minutes is probably the most important part of my meditation. It feels like that's when the most I don't know if the intense, but the most or the proper deepening of my meditation. Um, and then I'm like, oh, bummer, it's over. <laughs> and then I go about my day. And even if it doesn't work, I feel like it's not working. I know that it worked. It's really strange that even if you feel like you can't meditate, it does work work it's very strange but just settling the mind it gives your mind a break so that you're training your mind to be able to focus and to and i find it joyful i am elated i can't wait and uh that that's exactly how i feel about my meditation it's a it's i was very fortunate my parents stuck me in meditation classes when i was a kid <laughs> i'm like how do you do this and i'm trying to get my son to do it and uh, it's pretty cool. So thanks, John. I really appreciate your teachings. Thank you. Thank you. Got your meditations from yes. the website? Yeah, yeah I, I like them very much. So I do use the 20 minute. Um, and then if I can't catch it quick enough, I do a, a 15 or um, yeah, they're great. Yes. Yeah. Because the five That's minute it. just goes, I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm, I'm in it, you know? And then yeah. if I actually, 
uh, wander or if I have to move, I just gently say, okay, I'm just gently moving or adjusting myself or, you know, cause I'm, I'm human. I have to move. I, my yeah. brain is moving. It's just how we are. We have too many synapses, you know, in our brains. Yeah, we're, to, we're to, not, we don't have the power. Here. Yeah. We don't have the yeah. power to shut it down. So no, we're supposed to. I, one of the places I used to sit regularly, um, you had, you weren't allowed, you got your meditation posture and it had to be perfect and you weren't supposed to move. And if you moved, you got hit with a stick. It was oh. part of the practice, but really, I, there's one hanging up. Well, here. sometimes you're, you're, you have a little tension. You'll feel where your feet are and you're like, oh, I crisscrossed my feet. And then that tension is keeping you from going in. And then you go, okay, I'm just moving. Or you hear a bird. Okay, that's sound. Okay, that's thinking. Okay, that's movement. So I, I kind of label it, I guess. And then I say, okay, that's all right. Go back in. And uh, it's almost like, it's like that in-between state of sleep and awake. That's how I feel. It's like I'm just on that steady course. I don't even know I'm there when I'm there. Hmm? You mentioned that the last five minutes of time seems like the most effective it is. part of the presentation. It is. But it is. The first five minutes is just as it's just as important and just as meaningful as far as developing concentration as the last five minutes, as long as you're engaged yes. in the practice. So. And and if I didn't have and it's interesting because I never had meditation with the five minutes before. So it's it's like a guided, it guides you back into yeah under just going okay and i and i don't force it because i've had people try to teach me meditation in uh like my sponsor she would try to say don't think too much and, and she i know she's a thinker when she meditates <laughs> but i'm like don't worry about it <laughs> yeah. and i'm not trying to use it like dope but it, it sometimes it feels like it like you're like yeah this feels great <laughs> you know <laughs> It's wonderful, and I can tell. Thank you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you joined joined us this morning. I look Thank you. To your yeah, I needed to reconnect. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, great. All right, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll be in contact with you later. Hello, Jeff. Hello, John. Hello, Sangha. Hi, Jeff. Uh -huh. That was that was great, Stephanie. I was I was chuckling about you know somebody giving you advice like, whatever you do, don't think of this, right? And of course, they doom you immediately to a wrestling match with that one thought. Like, whatever you do, don't lose concentration. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I, I. I. Again, I was listening to this as I was driving around this week. I'm, you know, I've got an hour drive between different job sites, and so. Um, this was my, uh, accompaniment and it, it occurred to me that, um, that if you aren't dwelling in the Dhamma, you're dwelling somewhere. We all dwell somewhere in one way or another. And, um, you're either going to dwell in the Dhamma or you're going to dwell in some state, a mindset of confusion or, uh, eye making. Uh, as a result of aversion and delusional thinking and greed. 
uh, as a result of, of not concentrating and being ignorant of the four noble truths. So you've got you've got a choice of what where you're going to dwell. Yeah. You can either you can either dwell in confusion and and constant dukkha, or you can you can find uh, rapture and enjoyment and pleasant abiding and learn and, and develop your concentration. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's you know I find when I'm I'm I, I I'm uh, developing concentration in jhana that I that I I can actually at times feel as though when thoughts arise and pass away that I can almost view it as um, uh, almost a separate person. I, I I see them arise and pass away, but it, I don't feel as though I'm. It's, it, I don't feel as though I'm, uh, that's my identity. It's not me. It's like, it might as well be somebody else. Um, and that, that's when I, that's when I know I feel as though I've, I've developed some real concentration when I can, it's not real a disassociation and it's not denying ownership of it, but it's, it's not as though I'm, not in control of how I identify with it. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you, Jeff. And you're right. It, it, Dharma practice, Dharma practice can only be practiced in this present moment, and it's always a choice. Am I going to? Am I going to continue to engage in eye making, or am I going to establish calm in this moment? Am I going to sit and meditate, or am I going to distract myself with something else? It's always a choice. I read a, a good book, one of my favorite, um, when I was into the self-help stuff, uh, favorite authors was this guy called Ogmandino. I think he wrote some of the best books in that genre. Um, some of you might have read his famous, most famous book is The Greatest Salesman, Whoever Lived or something like that. But he wrote a book called The Choice, a, a relatively small book. And he talked a lot about himself. He was a, a drunk who sobered himself up and then lived a very successful life based on certain spiritual principles that he incorporated into his life. But one thing that stands out in that book, the choice was pointing out how seemingly insignificant choices can lead to, to unexpected results that are unwanted. And to be very mindful of the choice we're making in this moment. And he wasn't a, a dollar practitioner at all. But his choice was always to, to stay in this present moment as best as he could, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the truth. We have a choice each and every moment of how we're going to live our lives. Are we going to live it established and refined mindfulness with a mind well concentrated, with a mind that's calm? Or are we going to be always agitated, always grasping after, or being afraid of things, not wanting things to happen? That is dukkha. And from understanding dukkha through this practice, we stop reacting to things and we simply are present as dukkha always arises and passes away. It's all impermanent. And we have that direct experience when we recognize these deepening levels of meditative absorption, which we all have experienced. Again, it's nothing special. It's really the most ordinary way to live as a human being, isn't it? Rather than a speculated human being, a fabrication of who we, who, that we created about ourselves. You know, this, the, the saying, one of the famous human saying is, let's be real. Well, why do we have the saying like that that's become part of our common social fabric? 
because we realize we're not, even if we're not ready to face it. So let's be real. Let's be real. Let's meditate and train only for calm. Right, Kevin? Great time. Thanks to Mary and Stephanie and Jeff. Those are great um, observations. Um, This is a great suit. It just really shows that you need both. You have to have um, knowledge about the Dhamma. You have to be introduced to the Dhamma and to learn the Dhamma, but you can't do it until you get to the culmination of the Dhamma, which is uh, right concentration. And it, it just is, it's a, like a feedback loop in, it, in itself. It's a wheel. It, you need the concentration to know the Dhamma. You need the Dhamma to know this deepening concentration. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I started, it was mainly starting with meditation, thinking, okay, I just need to reduce my stress. So meditation will help. And then not too long after, um, I found the Dhamma through your classes. And, uh, it just really showed why we need it. So um, that's a great. Began to integrate it in that yeah, in the way that it was presented. I'm sorry, I missed what you said. I said you you started integrating once you started. I I still think back to some of the classes, which was in the down the street on the corner, yeah. where we, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes it, I think it was Thursday nights back then. That it was just me and Kevin at that Thursday night class, but there's some of the some of the best classes I ever had. Yeah, me too. We really we had a great time doing it. Yeah. Know, just like that. And you were present and you started developing the Dhamma. And as they say, the rest is history. I'm glad you joined us this morning. Kevin. Thank you. And I'll see you. I'll see you uh, Wednesday. Yes. Look at those two Dhamma teachers out there in Ohio. Hello, Tom. <coughs> Hello. Hi. Sorry. That was me. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Hi. I've now I can confirm that this background you see on it is real. Um, It's not a fake background. (laughs) It's not Singapore or the Philippines? No, no. He really does have um, a lovely fireplace. And uh, (laughs) yeah, it's great. Um, So. Oh, yeah. I've. I've. yeah, the, the kitty cat does also exist. <laughs> I that. Um, so yeah, so this this um, I, I really I've enjoyed what everybody's been sharing actually, and I I wanted to refer back to Mary's analogy, the swimming analogy, which which really um, hit home, and um, it also got me thinking of um, when I was in Thailand earlier this year there was this, uh, I used to go to this sort of sports center and had a really nice pool and it was obviously outdoors and it was January and I used to go there in the afternoons whenever I could. And I'd, it was all lovely and peaceful until about 4 p.m. after some kids got out of school and they had swimming class. And then there was this really, really overzealous um, uh, swimming instructor, this guy that was totally out of shape and was just, shouting at these like 12 year old kids to like do do laps and to you know you, you can imagine like barking orders but he was incredibly passionate about what he does and I think he was actually probably quite a good coach but I just remember because he used to wear this um really sort of figure hugging like swimsuit 
I couldn't help but think, you know, you could probably take a bit of your, you know, the sort of the, the orders that you're dishing out. You could probably, um, uh, you know, um, listen to your own advice and maybe get in the pool a little bit more often. Right. And, and, and this is this, that's why this, this suitor is so timely for me because, you know, on a, if I ever lose my way in the Dharma, I won't lose my enthusiasm for the Dharma. Um, so I will be that sort of, you know, overzealous parent saying, oh, swimming's awesome. You've got to do swimming. That's all you need to do. And yet I, I you know, if I lose my way, then I won't get in the pool enough and I won't I won't actually do the work. I'll I'll be I'll be talking about how great swimming is, but not actually doing it. So this this is a is a really brilliant suitor for that. And I think, as you said, I think it's quite timely because, um, you know, some of us, perhaps many of us are going to about to go on retreats and it's a chance to really benefit perhaps from some of that seclusion and, and hopefully integrate it even more dil diligently into our lives um so i'm i'm um i'm looking forward to that over the next few days um i'm going to do my best to, to to sort of follow the very strict doherty um <laughs> regime of meditation over the next few days and then after that of course going on retreat which is which is something i'm really looking forward to as well so um yeah lo love you know really really got got a lot from this class and um yeah that's all that's i'll pass it. over to thank you Tom. that was, that was a, a great story about the slightly uh pudgy instructor <laughs> and it, and again he didn't see himself that way much like all the monks <laughs> in that monastery they all thought they were meditating you know this guy thought he was slim and trim like me <laughs> hello brian Hello. Yeah, our fingers are going to be pruny, and we're just going to smell chlorine. They exactly. The, 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 <laughs> I love so. it. Uh, the, the what jumped out for me was the the intellectualization of this of the content, and in that that using that rational mind to try to digest this can only get you so far, until you get into the meditation and start having the direct experience that the rational mind just can't put into language yeah and that's uh um that's more important as the buddha pointed out to develop that concentration through the meditative practice so thank you yeah thank you brian and this this also you know this comes out of everything the buddha taught came out of his own experience his own direct experience none of it was based in fab fabrication or speculation and when he in the Adita Pariyasana Sutta, if I remember the name correctly, where the Buddha describes studying with two famous teachers and mastering what they taught intellectually, he mastered it. But he realized that there was you know, talking to about Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta. He also realized that the whole thing was an intellectual experience, and it didn't lead to his goal, which was understanding the nature of human suffering, dukkha. And so he abandoned that because it was just an intellectual study. And so he realized that that's not it. It's not through that type of engagement that you can develop awakening, but it can be a part of it like we do here. Thank you, Brian. Does anybody mind being on camera this morning? Everybody stares. <laughs> just fine.
Oh, I'm going <laughs> As Zach put his hat on. There's Jennifer. Jennifer, good to see you. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for the teaching. Um, the understanding of the four levels of jhana had eluded me. And um, I had worked it into a totally different thing than it is. I thought they were levels that you attained, yeah. not that it was a process that you go through. And um, so I'm excited for my meditation tonight <laughs> because it takes a certain pressure off. Mm -hmm. yeah, I just I, didn't realize was there that I was thinking mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be reaching this. Mm -hmm. What are these levels? Yeah, that's crazy. And um, yeah. It's so, going to change your, your jhana practice significantly. Yeah, I feel that already. So, yeah. you know, I'm looking forward to the night's practice and, and understanding that, and I have gone through all four. Yep. You know, obviously, you know, with not being as steady as I should be in it, I'm going through the first and second level more than I am the third and the fourth. Yeah, of course. You know, but I have experienced the third and the fourth. And um, yeah, so again, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you're listening to the guided meditation. From the I website. am. Yeah, I, I had been listening to Insight Timer Ones, doing it without those. Um, and <laughs> yes, yes. But I had been picking the ones where, you know, like they weren't guiding you through the whole thing. You know, at least I understood that much. Um, but yeah, they were distracting me. From yeah. a good practice, they really were. It really does. It's yeah, it, it it was. I'm gonna see if I can get on. I tried a few times to get on to Insight Timer, so after retreat, I'm gonna yeah. go through it again. I think Jen, you sent me some mm -hmm. info on it. Because there are some that I did manage to find some that they don't just talk all the way through or guide you all the way through. I understood at least that much wasn't. It's still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mentioned. Uh, our dinner Tuesday. I don't know if you can make it, but okay. Well, Tuesday nights, I babysit the grandkids. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. can take care of themselves. Do it. I have to do it. Mom's <laughs> working, so I'm the one that picks them up from all their things. And mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, we'll. I hope we see you again soon. There's <laughs> Becky. Hello, Becky. Hello. Good morning. Um. I just want to say that I, I really, I really like what Mary said, mm -hmm. doing laps, and I think you all probably know from what I've been saying the last, I don't know, month, six weeks, is that my meditation practice is, went through a, a bit of a, a hindrance, let's just put it like that, and so I started meditating twice a day instead of 20 minutes once a day, T meditating for 10 minutes twice a day, trying to get everything sort of back into a routine. And I find that meditating for only 10 minutes is, it's difficult for me to get to maybe the third jhana or that, that place where you feel like you have no words. That's how I describe it, where you can just 
your thoughts are there, you know they're there, they're, but they're in the background. And you feel your mind sort of relax. I actually can feel that. Sure. Um, so I'm, I don't know if I should just go back to 30 minutes a day or should I just keep working on the, the two 10 minute days? Because going over this again, this, this Suda really helped. It really helped me to see what I was missing. Yeah. What I was missing. And, and I started remembering how I felt at the end of a 30 minute meditation. And the way I felt was just calm. It's the only way to describe it. It was not, it was just calm. I, I would suggest, Becky, that maybe add five minutes to each of the 10 minute sessions and see where that gets you. Okay. Because again, I think you'll, your Because I was doing 30, so that would be half. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And even, even then, I mean, if you really want to have a 30 minute sit, have a 30 minute sit either morning or afternoon, but still include the other session and make it 10 minutes or so. So you, you so meditate for 40 minutes twice a day. But I would say try the two 15 minutes first. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I, I think that the two sessions should be <clears> balanced <throat> if that works for you, but everybody's different. And if, like Becky might find, that a longer sit is better for you, for your practice, that doesn't mean you should eliminate the other sit, but maybe they both, they both try and say, I get it. They both don't have to be the same. Right. Way. I get it. My, I, my inclination is that they should, but I don't, you know, there's nowhere where the Buddha taught. They got to be exactly the same. We just got to say, go find a secluded spot and do jhana. So whether it's 10 and 20 or 10 and 30 or 15 and 15, um, I think that's up to you and your own individual practice. So you, you brought up a really good point, I think, for all of us. Thank you. Well, this was a Thank good you. a good uh, sangha for me to have just before I go on vacation. So. Yeah. And for us going on I get my, I think almost every, not to make anybody feel I'm bad. I'm trying to avoid the, the hindrance of not meditating while I'm on vacation. <laughs> 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 I have to meditate. Here's Julia. Hello, Julia. Good morning. Thank you for the teaching. Um, this has been a really great class. I don't have anything to add. Maybe if anybody's speechless, I love it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Here's Zach. Hello, Zach. John, thank you for the teaching and for, uh, yeah, bringing this up. Um, it's very helpful. You understand that John is a little bit more. Now? Yeah, yeah, and I, I realize I have, I have experienced all, all the levels. Um, which is nothing special, um, but, but it's uh, extraordinary too, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, a few times I've, you know, after having, you know, only a minute or two in in the fourth level post, you know, meditation, just it's it's phenomenal. Just mm -hmm. the ability yeah. to concentrate and be present mm -hmm. for. Minutes, hours afterwards, yeah. Um, but it's it's just a, a remarkable difference in the just way becoming it, familiar with your own mind. Yeah, yeah, just in the way that exists. I I find that 
um, I have a cheat to get there sometimes too, just in life. And actually it was Brian, when he taught the class, he was taught, he said the word phenomenological, I believe. Oh yeah. And my favorite word is bewilderment because when I find myself bewildered, it's not about me. It's about just interest in what's going on in the world. Yeah. Well, that's and all. Whenever I find myself having a hard time being in the moment, I just kind of say, appreciate the phenomena around you. And it brings about a curiosity where self drops, the need for yeah. permanence drops. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's like I find myself resting in one of the deeper levels of jhana. And no longer bewildered. Well, to bewildered. Yeah. Well, well I guess bewildered could, it can here. sometimes be confused. But for me, it's it's really just to to be in awe of in what's awe. going on present. around you and present. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know it has that negative connotation as well, of uh, confusion. But um, it's you say that Father, uh, uh, like this Catholic mystic, uh, named Merton, uh, used to say that meditation is a practice of standing in awe. Mm-hmm. Of course it isn't, but it also is. It's in awe of our own humanity, mm-hmm. what we really are. It's pretty awesome to, to recognize that I'm here having this human life, and that's what I'm supposed to be doing, nothing else. Yeah, yeah and then I'd also say that this, this week has been... Um, this has been, my practice has been lacking this week. Oh. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, I definitely haven't been, been adhering to the, the meditation schedule. There's been some days I haven't meditated and I've been, no, it's just good to come back to it today and appreciate yeah. how much value there is. Yeah, you, you, it's always here too, isn't it? You don't, I mean, it's best to just keep your practice going all the time, but I don't know that everybody does it, except me. <laughs> but it's always here. You come back to it. Yeah. It has effects. Thank you, Zach. And thanks for this class is because of Zach's inquiry into the genres. And again, yes. we're going to go into this uh, a review of genre right after our retreat. He's <clears throat> Ron. Hello, Ron. Hello, John. So you, when you started... You first came to class down the street about, I think it was 70 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, you started meditating right off the bat, and you just never stopped <laughs> twice a day, every day, right? <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Um, <clears throat> I did come there to meditate. Yeah. You know, I didn't care about you. Yeah. I just wanted to have a spot that I could meditate with people. Because that, that's that's how I was taught to meditate. You meditate you know, in, a, in a group. Um, and when I finally got to uh, understanding the importance of my individual meditation practice, um, it was really difficult for me to, to get that together. Because um, I am like the first parts of this this suit i am that that intellectual yeah. you know I, I really that's that's my whole being is that um and so it it was a real struggle for quite some years 
to, first of all, to establish it, you know, because I had all these reasons why I shouldn't and couldn't. Um, and then when I finally did, um, it was a real struggle not to get caught in this, I have to do this right. You know, am I doing this right? Yeah. You know, why am I still, you know, why, why is my head still buzzing, you know, for 20 minutes? Um, and on and on and on. Um, and it took a while to let that go. I had to let that go of this, this constant evaluation. I had, I had to get my ass out of that, that first job. Yeah. I finally understood the, the importance of the, um, They're laughing at your arm. No, I just so really get relate. my ass yeah. out of that first yeah. job. <laughs> so relate to that. And because you needed to evaluate it, you were stuck in that level. I was that's what that level is. That oh, yeah. 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 Am I doing this right? Am I doing yeah. This? Um, but as you continue I, to deepen your concentration. Right. I finally gave up on this whole idea that I had to get somewhere with this, with this meditation. And... I realized after a while that what was important really and, and where it showed was my level of mindfulness in the rest of my day. Right. That's where it finally struck me. This is work. Yeah. But I had to get out of that frustration of, of wanting to you know, get to one, two, three, four. But you had to you had to first keep going. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. The effort, right you, effort. Have, you have to put the effort in there. Yeah. That's that's important. But the uh, as as Mary said, um, I just had to get into the mechanics of it. Just do it, and then you know the fruits of it are in mindfulness, are in in the day to day mindfulness, the minute to minute mindfulness. When you see that blossoming, then. You know that it's it's good, whether you recognize whatever jhana or not. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it, it can be for me. It's been made a distraction. You know, this this jhana level. Oh yeah. We talked about it at, at some point during a <clears throat> during one of the first uh, retreats. That, you know, yeah. Completely frustrated on that. Yeah. And yeah, and it's still at times <clears throat> I can still see it as a struggle. And then I just have to give it up. No, it's not a struggle. Yeah. I'm doing it. Period. And now you're recognizing, you're able to recognize rapture because you see the benefits mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Here's Jen. I'll wait till she gets done. <laughs> well, you better be because you're on camera now, young lady. Hello, Jen. Um. Love listening to what everybody said, um, and I'm sort of coming to the, sort of seeing the same stuff in that I feel like we go through our day practicing 
you know, it, the nature of mind, like if you just let it go and you do nothing, if you are mindless, if you're not in the dhamma, you're not really trying anything, you're not in the pool, you're not in the stream, your mind will just cling to every single thing that it perceives. Yeah. Oh, God. Every form, feeling, bodily sensation, every emotion, every perception, fabrication, you know, what is my consciousness? What's my overall narrative right now? What does my mind feel like? All of that stuff just gets used to further define me to me and create more eye-making. Yeah. And so that's what we will practice if we don't practice something else. And that's what the Buddha discovered when he discovered Vedana meditation was that there was something else to practice. We can practice focusing the mind on breath in the body. And while doing that, further allow the mind to see thoughts, feelings, fabrications arrive and pass away on their own, that requires a lot of concentration. So it's giving the mind something to do besides just cling to all the other things. Yeah. And it, it makes the phenomena that arise and pass away as part of being a human being having a body, being in the world, those things become less noisy yeah. because we're not focusing on them anymore. We're just focusing on the breath. So, yeah. Anyway. So really what you're describing is the difference between jhana meditation as part of the Eightfold Path is that we stop seeking salvation. We stop trying. Mm -hmm. to, we're not using a so-called spiritual practice to fix something or gain something. We're just learning to concentrate. And and the significant difference to that compared to, and this is not, this is an observation, it's not a knock, it's just pointing out the difference. Those that seek salvation will, and are not really into an external type of salvation, will look for it in meditation alone. And that's why meditation, one of the, the, the most, one of the most predominant forms of modern Buddhism is insight practice, insight meditation. And I've been on their sashins. I'm not putting them down. Millions of people love it. But it's about having an experience during your meditation rather than developing concentration. Well, 
in that experience is seeking mm. salvation. It's seeking some kind of, I, I thought that I would find, I would develop some kind of supernatural power, whether it was clairvoyance or the, honestly, there the ability to, to fly to Pluto in my astral body. I thought these were going to be the results and other things of living for 300 years. I was, you know, I saw movies about that, that that was the point. The point of meditation was salvation, not calm leading to understanding. And that was a significant difference between what the Buddha taught then. And it seems to be the significant difference between what we practice and what all those other heathens are doing, uh, what other people decide <clears throat> to do with their lives. And that is it there. But it, it is just, I think it was accurate. But it's just, it is just a choice. Some people choose this. Some people choose what we're doing here. But when you're seeking, though, that's all you're already in. The salvation mode. I mean, you're already mode. in. You're in all view. Yeah, you're already looking yeah. for a way to. And that's establishing a me and an I in my own thoughts. Yeah. You're already outside of like what's occurring. Yeah, and if you're looking you're for that. From, and that's now you're lost yeah. to Jana completely. Yeah, mm -hmm. it won't, you, you, you won't. You have to come back to the breath, what's occurring now. Yeah. And the seeking drops away. Yeah. That's right. And that's, that's, I mean, I know you know this. I don't know. No, but I know you're, you're, you explain <laughs> it in a, in a much better way than I do. And you're also that, that point of just coming back to our breath, whether it's in jhana meditation or when we're out on in the world, mm -hmm. is radical acceptance. That's enough. Right yeah. here, right yeah. now. This is mm -hmm. this is me. This is what I am, and I'm nothing more than this moment and having this experience. This is not me. This is not mine. Mm -hmm. And that takes Jonathan. It takes concentration. And that's why the, these conversations with with spiritual people can be so pointless. Yeah. Because yeah, truly, you know, they keep asking you why why you're doing this or what you're supposed to get out of it. Where's the and, salvation? In you know, and that's that's what they're asking. And you know, the only comeback is I just want to be here. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of people that come to me initially talk about the reason why they want to do this is they have mon monkey mind as a common phrase, mm -hmm. or they can't stop thinking. They're they're always agitated. But when they they find out that we train only for calm, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Because if you think that you're not enough, a meditation practice that doesn't add to your view of self is going to seem like not enough. How do I promote myself in this? How do I, how do I make myself bigger or better or more noticeable? You can't do it in Dharma practice, can you? You can only become a human being, which is pretty good. When people talk about monkey mind. Here's David. Monkey mind in being agitated, you really should quickly follow up. You're in a deluded state. That's what you are. Yeah. You're in a deluded yeah. state, one of the, the final ones. That's why your mind is agitated. That's why your mind is agitated. Yeah. That's why you're avoiding problems. That's why you're you know, seeking this out. And what John Meditation provides is that Ability to look at that moment in right view, mm -hmm. right view, mm -hmm. yeah, and 
why the word I grabbed onto today is permeate. What was it? Permeate. Your entire that, mind and body. And that's all about deciding that. Why am I talking about five minutes a day, twice a day? Think about that. Commit to this. Yeah. You know, Jennifer's talking about how you have that level of mindfulness that you, you experience. Okay. And that's like, think about that, that opportunity to do a little bit more and really absorb yourself into this and really experience the opportunity to have ownership of that moment, whatever it is, because mm -hmm. it's not a promise of a better moment. It's just understanding that that moment is impermanent. It will arise and pass away. And that's the calm that Jennifer always talks about. It, it takes effort. It absolutely takes effort. Absolute daily, no days off, each moment effort. Without it, it's it's a hobby. But if you do it and commit to it, you'll get it the full extent of what this practice can provide. Truly. Well said, my friend. That, that's uh, I cannot add to anything that anybody said. It's really just another remarkable class. Um, you know, and I, and I would say that it's a remarkable, remarkable class, not so much um, informed by your teacher, but really informed by our teacher, isn't it? It's still remarkable to me how relevant these words that this guy said 2,600 years ago mean everything today, right? I mean, they, we, we, we're still pointing ourselves back to reality. That's the right way to say it, to point yourself back to reality. That we're, we're living in, we're understanding what it means to be a human being. Think about when I was said, like my friend Robert Wolf, who wrote a book, what it is to be human. This is what we're doing. We're learning what it is to be a human. And nothing out there has anything to do with me. And everything in here, my experience of that, has everything to do with me. And if I'm able to control my mind through concentration and then develop a right view of this is not me, this is not mine, this is not thing. Thank you all for a great class. Is there any questions or comments? Grab a camera. Oh, I'm sorry. I did that. I guess say everything I just said over again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll finish with. I gotta get one of those ring lights so people can see my beauty. You need a spotlight. Yeah. And finish with uh, meta as we always do. So take a, mo a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body, permeating your entire mind and body. And these are the words of Buddha on metta, describing what it means to be an awakened human being. The Buddha's words. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, 
not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.